my name is Rick Archer, and I'll be introducing the other people here in just a second. A couple of years ago, several of us, actually, I think all of us, have been on the spiritual scene for a long time, and we all, independent of one another, had become very concerned about a lot of the behavior in spiritual communities, especially by spiritual teachers. My personal concern is that I feel very deeply that the upwelling of spiritual awakening in the world, which has been alluded to many times so far during this conference, as being critical to the survival of the world, was being sabotaged or handicapped or shot in the foot by um, this behavior, sometimes very egregious, within spiritual communities, primarily by teachers, primarily by male teachers. I felt like perhaps I could play some little role in helping to raise awareness of what may or may not be appropriate behavior for a spiritual teacher. It's pretty common sense, actually, because it's appropriate behavior for a human being. But sometimes spiritual teachers are presumed to be wiser or more enlightened or something, and they're given a pass when they behave in certain ways that ordinarily people would be called on the carpet for behaving. So in any case, a couple of years ago I gave a talk about this, and Jack O'Keefe attended, and Craig attended, I believe, and afterwards we had lunch, and we, we said, you know, we ought to get together some kind of spiritual, some kind of organization which would try to establish a code of ethics, such as lawyers and doctors and therapists and many other helping professions have, that just kind of lays out some guidelines of what would be appropriate, what is, should be appropriate behavior for spiritual teachers. And I want to say from the outset, because often the knee-jerk reaction when we mention this endeavor is that we have, we're this, these judgmental people who expect to wield some kind of authority over the spiritual community and levy fines or penalties or something if people misbehave. No such thing. We're not like the AMA, which could grant uh, or revoke licenses, but we're just a bunch of people who are, like all of you, who would just like to see the whole thing be neater and cleaner and stop seeing people being injured, sometimes quite severely, by the way some teachers have behaved. So, after a year or so, this organization had been formed and had been established as a 501c3, a nonprofit. And in the next year, we were honored by having Mariana Kaplan and Miranda McPherson join us. In fact, Miranda came to our presentation last year, and she was she came up afterwards. She was like, "Yes!" Oh, <laughs> and then she ended up becoming part of our board of directors. Okay, so I mentioned them in passing. I just want to read a little bit longer bios before I do that. I just want to ask. How many in the audience here actually serve in the capacity of spiritual teacher in some way, shape, or form? Quite a few. Okay. Very good. I'm curious how many people have been impacted by trauma and unethical behavior on the spiritual path. Again, quite a few. All right. So many of you know by firsthand experience why we feel this need. And I think others have read enough of the accounts of the scandals that come out weekly to... Uh, acknowledge that, yeah, there's some sort of need for some greater impeccability in the, in the spiritual community. So let me just introduce our speakers. To my left is Jack O'Keefe. Jack is a spiritual teacher who focuses on prior to consciousness or beyond non-duality. She pioneers non-traditional models of spirituality and is a founding member of the Association for Spiritual Integrity. 
She's also been like our main engine in terms of she do, uh, dedicates a whole day of each week to focusing on it, and she's worked very hard to, to get it together. Okay, and Jack's second book, How to Be a Spiritual Rebel, was released this week. Mariana Kaplan, I remember running into Mariana uh, Sand up in San Rafael a number of years ago, and I'd already read a couple of her books, such as Halfway Up the Mountain, The Error of Premature Claims to Awakening, and Do You Need a Guru, which is a great title, and uh, Do You Need a Guru, and I, I saw her name type, Mariana Kaplan, God, I love your books, and so it's wonderful to now be you know, a friend and involved with her. Mariana is an author, consultant, psychotherapist, and yoga teacher who brings over 20 years of research, teaching, and the publication of nine books on topics related to the intersection of psychology, spirituality, yoga, world religions, and contemporary spiritual traditions. Cut these a little short. Craig Holiday, I asked for one sentence bios, Craig gave me one. Craig Holiday is a spiritual teacher and therapist and founding member of the ASI. <laughs> Miranda McPherson is a spiritual teacher, author, and founder of the One Spirit Interfaith Foundation in London, where she trained and ordained over 600 ministers. Today she leads the Living Grace Sangha in Northern California and leads retreats internationally, sharing a feminine approach to non-dual realization. Okay, so where shall we start? Why don't you start with one of the questions? Okay, so uh, here's one. I'll just take them from the top. What qualities characterize a psychologically healthy teacher, student, and spiritual community? The qualities that characterize a healthy spiritual teacher is somebody who, in their, especially in their internal identity and heart of hearts, is a student of the path and is a servant of the path and as a function as a teacher. It is somebody who ongoingly pursues their own, not only spiritual growth, but psychological growth that pursues knowledge of trauma healing, whether it's for their own trauma or because um, most of the people that will come to them have been impacted by trauma. Those are just a couple of qualities, but in terms of, of students, it's students who are willing to be empowered to be adults in relationship to their spiritual teacher and not defer authority or assume that because somebody's a spiritual teacher or is so-called awakened that they either have the answers should be given control for their life, especially in areas that are not directly related to their spiritual growth, like relationships, money, sexuality, having children, worst of all. And healthy spiritual communities I'm fortunate to be consulting for one of them right now, and it's, it's a community that says, like, we need to continue to, just like a teacher and just like a student, pursue our ongoing growth, get external feedback, have external checks and balances where the teachers are not living and practicing in isolation and without feedback and peer support. Good. I should add that Mariana says that for quite a few years she has been consulting with both teachers and students who have been embroiled in various kinds of scandals and misbehaviors and so on. So she probably knows more about the dirty secrets of the spiritual community than anybody. I'd like to maybe add something, right? Uh -huh. uh, just one of the big things that I see is, you know, if, if someone's looking for a teacher, is the teacher an adult? Are they mature? And do they walk the talk? Do they live and embody the truth? And you can see really quickly, you know, just spending a little bit of time with someone, do they embody it? 
And then beyond that is, do they have a sense of humility? Are they willing to receive feedback? Uh, We are all human. We all make mistakes. We're all works in progress. And so does one have the humility to continue to grow, to look at their shadow? Uh, Like Mariana was speaking, have they done their trauma work? Are they continuing to do uh, their trauma work? Do they receive feedback just generally from friends, from family, from you, from their neighbor? And what kind of person are they? And then a great question as a student, you know, I often ask myself this is, am I showing up as an adult with my teacher? How much am I projecting onto them? Because sometimes it's, you know, us, the student that's projecting and we're wanting the teacher to be our father, our mother, our best friend. And of course they can't be all those. And so do we have that sense of uh, taking accountability for oneself? So both ways. And that's one of the things we invited at the ASI is to have a general standard code of ethics for teachers, just a general code of good practice and conduct. But then an accompanying code and guidelines for students. You know, how should I behave in relationship? Shall I throw myself at the guru's feet? Or, you know, can I show up as a psychologically mature individual? Can I also get, you know, go see a therapy for therapeutic support and see my spiritual teacher for spiritual teaching support? You know, so it, it works both ways, I think. Just on on that, if I can just add another layer to build on what Mariana and um, Craig have said. Craig was saying in a few days, you know, you'd have a sense, yes, an intuitive sense of a teacher. But how many students here would be willing to ask a teacher, are you open to feedback? What do you do when a crisis happens in your own life? Do you have professional support when your own psychology is up for growth? I would love to have these questions asked of me, and they've never been asked. Never. To me, that's huge, and one of the things that I would be looking for, and that I think if anyone is teaching, it's really an integrity issue to make sure that you build support so that you come out of the teacher position on a regular basis with somebody else who you're willing to allow to call you to account and who isn't just going to, you know, idealize you all the time. And to put that in place as a structure in your life, to me, is part of the embodiment of integrity and what humility means in taking on the role of teacher, that you're not always the teacher. Miranda, don't you go to other teachers on a regular basis and just sit there as a student? I do that every two weeks. Every two weeks? Every two weeks. And I have a relationship with these two people where I have said to them, please, anything you can see in me that is not entirely integrated or any shadow material, anything you think I should be looking at, please bring that to my attention. Help me look at it. Help me go to the root of it. And I do at least two, sometimes three retreats a year with other spiritual teachers. So I'm just an ordinary person, just a student in the field with everybody else. I would say that being privy to really um, hundreds or thousands of spiritual scandals the teachers that have been in that position, almost none of them do what, what you're saying that you do as a spiritual teacher. Right. This is why I do it, because I've seen that too, and I've seen that it's very easy to get caught up in a teacher's shell, you know, for your ego to just get off on the idealization that being a teacher becomes and to start to buy your own propaganda a bit too much. Mm. 
and that's a really painful thing for everybody. When I was trained as a TM teacher in 1970, Marishi specifically said to us, don't go and see other teachers because if you're seen sitting in the audience, people will presume that you're still seeking, you know, <laughs> and that you don't actually, you're not already, you know, you don't have all the knowledge you need, you know, or something like that. And wow, golly. Uh, you know, that, that seemed, I bought into it, but now it seems crazy. I completely disagree with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because for me, what, the, what it embodies is that's a trustworthy teacher. That's a teacher who's willing to come off their pedestal and just be a person and acknowledge that no matter what we might have realized, there's more to learn, there's more we can learn. And, you know, it also keeps one in touch with the vulnerability of the student and the beauty of that. that it helps me be more respectful and honorable in my work as a teacher with others. Yeah. I should add that I got booted out of the PM movement for seeing another teacher. <laughs> <laughs> but I still respect and admire and appreciate and honor all the benefit I derived from that, but it was a nice way to make the transition. What defines a healthy teacher-student relationship? What does it play when the what is at play when the teacher consciously or unconsciously cultivates dependency in their students? Narcissistic issues. Narcissistic. <laughs> if there's a need on behalf of the teacher to have idealization, and you you know you have to really look at what's at the core of that. Well, it's usually the teacher trying to get some kind of narcissistic supply, some kind of support for their self-image as some superior person. But what I think is a little delicate is that the process of idealizing our teacher is a natural process. It can't not be there. So I think the conversation about students behaving like adults, I agree with that and just as children, it's a natural phase of our development to idealize our parents until we grow out of that phase. It's also a natural part when we're opening into new dimensions that are really beyond what we even understand, to lean into our teacher and their body of wisdom and look up to them. But the role of the teacher is not to abuse that, to understand that process and not to take advantage of it. And also to tolerate when that idealization breaks down, as it inevitably will. And to be humble enough to, to relax and be okay with the student coming to see, hey, you go feed a clay. You have arguments with your spouse. You lose your temper from time to time. You're not perfect at everything. And to model that this is not about spiritual perfection, it's about spiritual practice. And that includes us all ongoingly. Also, I think there's just a basic ignorance that, that people have, just lack of training. You know, if a teacher hasn't been properly trained, you know, then oftentimes we just fall into the same traps that a beginner therapist would fall into, a beginner massage therapist, whatever it is. It's, it's easy to get caught in projection, transference, counter-transference on the path if you don't know how to spot it, if... You have no idea even what that is or what that means. You know, it can be a beautiful thing as you come forward in your gift to get all kinds of great feedback from others. But then if you have the shadow and a need in there, you know, a narcissistic need, or I could even take that down a notch, just a human need for friendship, for relationship. Oftentimes, you know, the same kind of interplay that happens in an unhealthy marriage 
where, you know, husband or wife is not receiving, you know, good, healthy sense of love. You know, sometimes that teacher or therapist or whoever they are, they might receive that need from their students. And if they haven't been properly trained, if they don't have clear code of ethics, you know, to fall back on, then we fall into these traps. A lot of times teachers who get involved with scandals, whether it's big or small, they're good people who got a little bit confused and then a little bit more confused. Like Miranda's saying, you know, if the teacher has greater humility, they get a little bit confused and they realize, oh, I need some support, I need some supervision, I need some help, I need to receive some feedback. If they are lacking humility and they have a high degree of arrogance, you know, then they can get in a lot of trouble. Or even shame, because sometimes when we make mistakes, and all human beings make mistakes, can we own that in a spirit of compassion for ourselves and, you know, and use it to go, oh, what do I need to learn here? Where do I need to go in order to learn that? What's the gap? And address that. But I think because of this strange idea that if you sit in the teacher's seat that nothing should come up out of you sideways which isn't realistic anyway then there's not the appropriate attitude the mature attitude that when we do make mistakes and those mistakes become apparent often we feel ashamed about them and then hide them which is very dangerous rather than bring it out into the open and address it in the regular world non-spiritual world There might be an expert physicist. Einstein was said to have been a bit of a womanizer. Ulysses S. Grant was a drinker. Lincoln once said, find out what kind of whiskey he drinks. I want to give a bottle to all my generals. We don't expect people in various relative fields like that to necessarily be paragons of virtue or to be sort of perfect behaviorally and so on. And yet somehow in the spiritual world, we associate higher consciousness or awakening or something with more ideal behavior as well, that there's a correlation between being in a higher state and not acting like a jerk. But I've had people tell me, oh no, you could be you know, a raging alcoholic and yet be enlightened. I heard a spiritual teacher recently give a talk who claims to be awake advocating adultery, especially for men, because it's it's more natural for them or something. So is there a correlation or or should there be between higher consciousness, however we want to define it, and more impeccable behavior? By choosing the function of a spiritual teacher, there's not an inherent correlation. And like Miranda's saying, like spiritual teachers are absolutely as human as anyone else but to take that function which in my case i've never wanted that function because i believe that not because of that but that you you have a higher degree of accountability and your blind spots are going to be magnified by your position magnified by the projections that come onto you so to take that function is to not to take the responsibility to not err and not to show your errors and apologize for them but to choose to align your life with a kind of integrity, especially in relationship to sexuality, the topics of today, sexuality, money, and power. It's not that you know those things from the beginning, but you take it on to pursue that diligently and to keep pursuing that because it's your obligation. And one of the things, you know, I I was trained as a, a counselor and as a teacher, and so I just projected the basic codes of ethics onto spiritual teaching And so when you do that, when you have that training in the beginning, it's so helpful. It's just helpful. It keeps things simple to say, I'm agreeing to these basic rules going forward. When you don't have that, 
and you jump in and you say, okay, I'm supposed to live by integrity, things can get messy real quick. And when the teacher stops becoming a learner, I've seen examples of that with the idea of transcendence. I think I could probably count on one hand the amount of people who actually authentically have convinced me that they understand what transcendence is. And words like this are easy to glean from scripture. They're bended about very easily and they're not understood at all. And so what happens then is that they're used to create a blind spot. So the teacher can imagine, yeah, I've transcended such and such. This is the movement of pure consciousness. And it's bullshit. (laughs) Because they don't realize they must keep learning. There will always be blind spots by virtue of being beautifully evolving homo sapiens. That's the deal. And why do we want to hide in the first place? You know, why do we want to hide behind anything? What is that? And how do we change our culture to throw off what we've inherited for thousands of years about the impeccability of a teacher. How do we throw off that false goal which was really used to control in a way that religions control? Why would we subjugate ourselves to something that is so inherently about suffering and power in a negative way? Like It's up for each of us to embrace a lifelong learning be it seeker, be it teacher, in whatever capacity. There is lifelong learning or else you're denying your humanness. You're stopping evolving. You're pulling out of the ecosystem. Whatever lens of perception you want to look at, it's the same gig. I'd like to say something that links what you were originally asking with what you've just said, Jack, and that is that I think we've all been around teachers and the whole reason we've been inspired to sit with them in the first place is because there's something coming off them that we recognize as just beautiful, as very refined. There's these essential qualities that they radiate. And naturally, we want to be around that and we want to learn how do we allow those beautiful qualities of our true nature to shine forth in us as well. But my own experience, and I've seen this in my students too, is that there's not just one great big spiritual orgasm and then you're done. There are many different levels of awakening and different kinds of awakening. And the awakening to deeper realization is the easy part. In my own experience, the actualization, the integration of those states takes years. And I think that's, again, coming back to humility, why we need to really put in place some actual structures of support to help us work through the kinds of issues that deeper realization will push up in us. And it forces us to really deal with, and teachers who don't, it comes up in their communities. It shows up as problems with their students or places where that teacher it just can't actually take feedback in and utilize that feedback to grow and learn. So I think that there needs to be a little bit more understanding in the wider community about that balance between the the realization and the actualization and what does actualizing what we've realized and embodying it into every moment and interaction that life brings and complex situations such as what we're dealing with now, what does that look like and what does it involve and what supports are needed for that to actually happen? I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with the word enlightenment or awakened. They have this static, superlative connotation, you know. It's kind of like the word education. Would you ever say, I'm educated? 
you know, that's it. Obviously not. I mean, I, I'm staying in a house nearby, and, and I'm in the son's room. And there are all these books on the shelf about calculus and C++ and advanced chemistry and all. I don't know anything that's in any of those books. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of educated in certain ways, but there's a vast world of knowledge out there that I'll never tap into in this life. So in terms of spirituality, I think there's something comparable. Even though we might think of it as a specialized field, I don't know if there's any end to the depth of it or the embodiment of it. There's a Sufi saying that there's an end to the path to God, but there's no end to the path in God. And so if anybody ever says they're done, don't trust them. run for the door. But however, one type of the path for sure, there is a phase, because it happened to me, there is a phase of where you can only abide in the non-dual awareness, where you haven't matured enough to actually have multiple lenses of perception available to you at the same time. That's a tricky spot. So even though we're talking about exceptions to that, that type of awakening happens for many people. It's generally two years, and your primary way of perceiving everything is through the unified field. It's through knowing that this is illusion. And then, of course, with some maturity, it comes back in. Oh, it's real and it's not real. I see. There's separation and there's... It's the same and it's different, really. And how do we mature into be able to hold and honor both lenses of perception without judging one over the other? Well, maybe it's not both. Maybe it's a spectrum. Yes. And again, I think that challenges us even to not presume that the models of the East are necessarily complete. And, I mean, that's a bigger conversation, but I think it's a really interesting one to consider, you know, how do we really come back down from the mountain? Maybe, Mariana, you have something to say about that. Yeah, I think, as you mentioned, Rick, having worked with so many enlightened fallen teachers and communities, I deeply hold to, like, the possibility of endless awakening and that it belongs, you know, and is inherent in each of us and is our birthright. And at the same time, any fixed notion of arrival is a deterrent. And I'm glad you made that point, Jack, but a couple of years of non-dual abidance, what happens? You know, somebody becomes a teacher. Somebody starts gathering their students. They write their book. They proclaim. And yeah. the greatest danger, I mean, besides to the students, is to oneself. Because, because then you, you stop the process, you know, of, of not only the endless possibilities of awakening, you know, the... I love how the yoga scriptures, they, they detail this, what, what, what kind of passes for awakening in much of Western culture is, is like, but the first level, you know, of awakening in the yoga sutras and the next. And, you know, those people at the seventh level, I've met one of them in my life. And that's not even about the embodiment of that and how that applies, um, right? Because then not only the possibilities of awakening are endless, but the possibilities of of embodiment are endless. That says nothing to do with still our how we show up ethically, our capacity, our whole so our emotional development, our um, development and our relational capacities. So I think we, we really hurt ourselves as a culture um, to 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 hold to this notion of of enlightenment while at the same time not diminishing, which I fell into the trap of. I heard so much disillusionment that it was for, there was a time that I almost gave up on my own awakening process because there was so much damage and futility, right? So the flip side was that I had to call myself again, like this is inherent in each of us. 
And but that the notion of arrival or calling anybody enlightened or themselves calling themselves enlightened or awakened, it just seems so useless to me, unnecessary. Hear her. I think one problem with regarding a teacher as having arrived at the pinnacle of enlightenment is we've discussed that quite a bit but a problem with the student thinking that there is such a pinnacle is that student is never going to feel like he's reached it and therefore there's a certain undermining of where one is actually at at the moment which can be really quite nice if you relax into it and realize that you know every day is life and and we don't want to pass over the present for some glorious future and uh, you know we we can really be in a nice state but if you're always sort of pining for something other than what you're experiencing it keeps throwing you off um, keeps you in the search in the search people say give up the search you may find that a time may come when you feel like you're not searching anymore, but you certainly are, are still learning and exploring and discovering and deepening and all that, and I don't think that ever ends. But the, the, the emptiness, the sort of, oh, I, I'm going to die if I don't get this, that, that drops off and there's contentment dawns, but that's definitely not the end of the, the journey. Didn't Dogen say practice is realization and realization is practice? Mm. Another point we have here on our list is group mind, group think within spiritual communities and how it contributes to unhealthy behavior or cult-like tendencies. I'm reminded that story, which is kind of horrific, but about putting a frog in water, you know, heating it gradually as opposed to throwing a frog into boiling water or hot water. In that case, the frog jumps out because it notices the contrast. But if the water heats gradually, the frog doesn't notice and it just eventually dies in the hot water. So you can be in a spiritual community. It can go farther and farther off the rails and you don't realize it because you're in the group mind or the group think and you go along with it to absurd degrees sometimes. I've traveled around a little bit uh, to different communities and it's always been interesting to walk into the community and see, you know, what are the rules here? What are the games? You know, all the unspoken stuff. And sometimes it's really clean and clear and that's nice. And sometimes it's really weird and bizarre and neurotic and crazy. And one of the things that I've seen in my work, because I work with so many different students from different traditions, is the amount of pain that people uh, have experienced not only from the teacher, but say from the group, from the sangha, and the games, and the power structures, the jockeying, to get to close to the teacher, to be in the inner circle, the outer circle, you know, getting kicked in or put in, and all that stuff. And then when someone, you know, when those communities fail, or when someone loses their relationship with their teacher, all the great pain, because then they lose the relationship with that community, and it's a breath of fresh air because then they get step into something sane. But there's great grief there as well. And so I've always found it fascinating because when you step onto the grounds of an ashram or a Zen center or a you know, Tibetan Buddhist center, whatever it is, you'll notice almost like this little bubble as you go over the gates. I just had this happen when I went to Christ in the desert in New Mexico. I felt the rules of the silence of the monks. It was pretty healthy, but still, I felt that bubble and the group think that was present there, you know, and it, it's within all communities. It's not necessarily bad, but some of it's really uh, unhealthy. So many times when students have, have come to me with their complaints 
the first thing I say has, have you talked to your teacher about that? And more often than not, they will give some version of, I can't, you know, I, I just know that I can't. It's in the structure of the community. I know my teacher will be defensive. And, and I say, well, that may well be possible, but have you tried? And what often prevents us from trying? Well, we're scared, right? We want, we're afraid that we might lose some closeness or we might lose some specialness or we might be disillusioned by what we find. But that's where we circle back to the absolute necessity of being an adult in relationship to our teachers. And at the same time, not expecting our teachers to be perfect. So it's not challenging our teacher like you do, but letting ourselves have the questions, letting ourselves wrestle with them, and taking the courage to bring that to our teachers while giving them permission to be perfectly imperfect teachers. And I feel like that's like a very healthy part of the student-teacher relationship. It's the, the student raising the teacher, right? Not just the, the teachers raising the students. And I think just the element there is really our, our own courage and and being willing to, to risk, you know, whatever it feels that we have for truth, right? For, for real awakening. I'd like to open it up to audience participation now. Very interesting to hear you all. I'm a recovering addict, and I, I must admit I have been a recovering guru addict as well. <laughs> I've probably seen like 32 gurus, and like 12 of them living in my house, and I'm very touched hearing what you say. And I can say a lot of things about this, but it's fantastic what you do now because, you know, this is uh, otherwise we get a new church or whatever out of this whole thing. So I appreciate so much what I hear, and I. I read Mariana Kaplan's books when I got very hurt by Indian guru, the one that you need a guru and uh, halfway up the mountain, and it was that was so important for me to read those books of you. So I, I thank you so much for writing these books. Thank you. But please, uh, guru addiction, have you heard about them? Like any other process addiction. The codependency that I think you spoke about, that you can be... Uh, you know, depending on where you come from, you know, in, in, in your upbringing, that you hook on to the guru. Now, I work in the field of addiction, so I, both ways. Some people are saying the guru model is over, nobody should go to a guru. I wouldn't go to that extreme. I, I think that there are healthy guru situations that one could be involved in at a certain stage of their development. So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but obviously it's time to no longer tolerate or accept of some of the unhealthy guru situations that have prevailed. I think you and I, Rick, have both shown up to Alma many times, yeah. you know, and, and received support and a blessing. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciated all your comments and some very wonderful uh, comments about some general things. I wonder if you would address uh, specifically economics. Yeah, money. We were going to talk about money. Jack's <laughs> <laughs> That's the bone I'm chewing these days. Yeah. I can see some of the faces were at my talk earlier this morning, so I don't want to waste time saying the same thing again. That talk would be on YouTube soon. Yeah, in a nutshell, we have more work to do around money than what we realize. It's going to take us a long time to tidy up that one. And partly because the model... As regard ethical behavior, like Craig said earlier, you know, there's a code of ethics that he used when he was a counselor. There's a code of ethics in, in HEPA for, for medical field. So there isn't positive 
models of how to have a healthy relationship with money in the world at large. You see, so we're a step behind. That positive model isn't there, so we don't have that to draw on. So we've got to start at the beginning. So this is why I think it takes extra work to tidy up our own relationship with money and to use our own discernment regarding what is the financial cost of my spiritual development. And yes, it can be priced. It must be priced. Because your money is your energy, and you've got to figure out what proportion of your salary you want to spend on it. Not just because, oh, I should give everything. Oh, my heart is opening with this spiritual teaching. Wait till I just write an enormous check that the universe then will, will pay my mortgage next month. So all types of tricks and hacks come in to further obscure economics. We have a long way to go. So I wish I had a solution. All I can do is give tools. <laughs> Let's be more aware. Thank you so much, all of you, for all of this. Mariana, your book, The Guru Question for Me Too, has been hugely supportive for me in my journey with my teacher. I have a two-part question. One is, when I came on the path, and you know, we talk about it a lot, we feel we're in pain, right? Many of us who come on the path. I thought I was mature, but I wasn't. So we can talk about ethical behavior and also, also, and you did in your book, you talked about being a responsible student. But can you give a little bit more detail just around things for ourselves to really question and look into? Then my second question, second part, is actually kind of bigger. I'm hearing, Jack, a completely new paradigm for spiritual communities. And so what I see in that, and I, I would love a more, um, more dialogue in my community, more give and take, evening the playing field a little so that we're practicing together, so that when my teacher practices, I really get the benefit of that practice, right? As opposed to it being removed from me. But there's a dissolution of our current spiritual communities, it sounds like that has to happen a bit in order for this new period. Can you kind of speak to what that transition might look like? Thanks. I'm conscious of those two questions. I'll just do a quick one for the reply. Because I'm a teacher, I think the onus is on us to make the bigger shift. It's about us doing our work. So I'm interested in mobilizing teachers. I've had copious conversations with Rick, who is fielding all kinds of painful stories, um, real life experiences of students who've been treated so badly. And he's like, let's mobilize the students. And I'm like, I have to do it within my own community. So where I'm working at is like, if we were open to feedback, that's the step right now, is being open to feedback. I want students to question their teacher so that in Mariana's example that she gave earlier, have, have you as a student brought that to the teacher? Have you tried? Expect if the teacher is full of resistance and assumes it's your projection, expect that. I said, well, have you considered that maybe this is a projection that you're sending back on me? Because to me, it's a projection. So we almost need the students to be doubly aware. And I don't want to put all that onus on the students because I think we're the ones who are supposed to be sages. We're supposed to be the elders. We're the ones who don't have our shit together. Just to um, give you my argument, 
I sort of feel like students can hold teachers' feet to the fire and that very often students doubt themselves. There's a certain aura around the teacher as being really super and special and all that and knowing something which the students don't know. And so the teacher can do stuff and the students, rather than doubt what the teacher's doing, will doubt their own perception or their own judgment. They'll think, well, he's enlightened, I'm not. Therefore, I guess it's okay for him to do this stuff. What do I know? So I'm just saying if students had more confidence and their common sense, then they would say, no, that's wrong. I don't care who he is. People shouldn't behave that way. And if, if they were to speak up to the teacher, like you're just saying, then things could get sorted out, maybe. Well, and, and that's a spiritual path, too, in and of itself, because what I've seen often is students actually speaking up to the teacher and the teacher laying it on heavier, their spiritual concepts, their defensiveness for the behavior attacking the students yeah but if and so then this numbers though then well all the students were doing it so then the student gets doubly wounded like yeah. a deeper wound but then again for the student to see this is part of my path to grow deeper into my own integrity my strength my confidence here is my teacher you know he she you know they betrayed me and now can i continue to go forward on this path because a lot of students become disillusioned in that moment and they leave the path and that's heartbreaking. I've met people who've spent decades who've left and then come back and said, okay, I want to give this another shot again. But, you know, not to go away for decades, to say, okay, this is the path. My teacher let me down. This is the path. I'm going to go forward and grow in my own truth, my own autonomy, my own authority. And that's a big step, a big step for the student. I'd like to just come back to what you were raising because I thought what you were saying was really important about spiritual maturity and how inevitably most of us come to the spiritual path because we're suffering and we're trying to address that suffering and thank God for it. Often it's the powerful motivator that we need to really dig deeper into ourselves and to, to really engage some musculature in our practice. But spiritual maturity, you know, develops and it doesn't stop. So it doesn't stop developing in the teacher. It doesn't stop developing in the student. And rarely do I find when tough things happen, it's actually black and white. There usually is some big history in the student that is driving a huge transference of various, you know, that has a lot of layers and wounding and trauma and pain and confusion in it. And there's often also something for the teacher to see. So what I'm really interested in, what I hope that we can do together and build over the years is a culture where there's more honesty and more compassion and a cleaner recognition that, you know, spiritual maturity is something that continues and that a person can have a tremendous realization in some areas that is legitimate and is beautiful and we can grow and be nourished by, but that doesn't mean that they're by definition integrated in that realization in all areas. And I think that that's here in the West, you know, what we get confronted with because we live in a much more complex society than the models of the East that have brought with it the guru tradition. So we can't just transplant something that belongs to a whole other cultural system and expect it to work here. We have to evolve with it. I want to add in here that spiritual work does not replace psychological work for the teachers or the students. You can be a therapist in today's world without ever having done psychotherapy. You can be a psychiatrist without having ever done 
done a course of psychotherapy. You can be a spiritual teacher. Spiritual teachers talk about psychology all the time. And when you actually get down on the ground and see how many teachers have done a full course of psychotherapy for myself, I'm committed to doing that at each developmental stage of my life. Because as Miranda said earlier, at each developmental stage, new possibilities and just new material emerges. I had a 10-year argument with my first wonderful guru about that, and I just basically disagreed, and I went back and pursued my own trauma training, my own, my, another course of therapy. It's a fatal flaw that people want to, right? We come with our suffering, we get all of these big, beautiful teachings about awakening, and we assume that that's going to address our psychological wounds and trauma. It is complementary, highly complementary, but also distinctly different. And I, I will, you know, say again tomorrow, I'm talking about how, you know, my idea is about ending sex scandals on the spiritual path, but there is no alternative other than to engage in, you know, good therapy that is embodied, that has a trauma component, and for every student and teacher to take responsibility for doing that. I mean, we would solve so much of the agony if people would do that simple commitment. It's, it's just healthy and it's wise. It's healthy and it's wise. Hi, thanks so much for all that you're saying. I wanted to ask, is it possible that a teacher could refer a student absolutely. when they feel that they're out of their depth? Oh, absolutely. Has that been, have you ever done yeah. that? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, that could be an answer if, in fact, that training hasn't been given, but they can identify it. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm going to ask about that. Yeah, and it's good to have a network to refer to. Yes. Sometimes you could feel that a student actually would do better over there than with you. Yes. yes. And, you know, if you really love your students, and if you don't love it, you shouldn't be doing it. You know, if you really love your students, you want what's going to serve them. And I think sometimes as a student, you can, a mature student to a degree, can tell when it doesn't resonate. Exactly. The other thing I wanted to know is, is there a length of time that you would have a student come to you? Is there a time, years, would you allow that? When do they fly? Well, one of the things that I look at is, is does the student have an actual resonance with the lineage if you are part of the lineage? Like I was with my teacher for decades and I feel him with me now. And so I just feel like I stepped into that. But I also trained in other lineages where it just felt like I'm going to study here for, you know, two years, five years, get something good, and then move forward. Have you had students that fly that oh, you have yeah, absolutely. had with you? And for what period of time, let's say, do you maintain them as long as they keep coming back? Modern day spirituality is a funny thing. A lot of people window shop and a lot of people come and go. It's rare that people actually commit to something deep and stick around and are willing to do the hard work. Right. That, that's my personal experience. I have different experience in that I really like to work with people over the long term. And I have two sanghas in the Bay Area and I trained and ordained ministers. So there was a graduation process. And then with those ministers, once they'd gone through a certain curriculum and had been endorsed to go and teach, then they become part of an alumni organization and the relationship changes. However, what I learned going through that experience for 10 years is there's no set time limit per person. It's a very unique 
relationship that you have with each individual. And so how I work with it now over the long term is we become more practitioners together. There's always that love for one's teacher, but there's there's less asymmetry in the mix, and there's an encouragement from over here in the one who's had the teacher role to sort of encourage them to serve in some way, to see how their gifts and their wisdom want to come forth in the world, whether that wants to happen within the community by bringing forth and giving that person more responsibility or helping them mentor younger students on the path or whether there's some way that they feel called to embody their wisdom and for me to encourage that. About 25 years ago, Arnie Mendel said to me, you will always know a great teacher because they are the people who will give their students the very tools and weapons with which to kill them. And I think as teachers, we must do that. And every time I teach a group, I will pass out forms for feedback great to keep me in my integrity and i've been doing that for 20 years now and i think it's a great uh, yeah. thing to do yeah that's that old buddhist saying you see the buddha in the road you know it's like kill him yeah, yeah keep walking i'm imagining we don't have time for a full answer but i was curious what the impact of your work has been in the recent history and how well is your work being received and our spiritual teachers catching on to what you're offering you mean the asi yeah Yesterday, we had a meeting of 45 spiritual teachers and leaders. We created a hermetically sealed confidential space, which was not recorded and without microphones. And we made a step toward bringing forth what leaders were struggling with, with their vulnerabilities, their needs. I won't try to speak for the ASI in general, but it's, you know, we're new. And I was deeply moved and uplifted by the fact that so many teachers were willing to step off of their soapbox or mountaintop or isolation. And many of us were expressing the need to, they wanted connection. They wanted removal from this isolation. They wanted peers, they wanted feedback. So that's just one example of, you know, I think a beautiful step that we And we met for four hours. It was, a, it was an incredible meeting. People showed up, they were deep, they shared their tears, their open-heartedness, their vulnerability. It was a really beautiful experience. At the yeah. end, we taped something for about 45 minutes, which I'll probably be putting up on YouTube so you get it. It was a summary of it, and each person in the room made a statement. And by the way, if, if you are interested in being a part of the ASI, please join us, email us, get a hold of us. Yeah. On the website is spiritualintegrity.org. We're looking for more support because this is what we're trying to create, a greater change in the culture to create a greater sense of humility, growth, professionalism in this field so that we can better serve others. So we can better serve. We're out of time, I'm afraid. So thank you very much for coming. We really appreciate this nice full room of yeah. people. Yeah, thank you all so much. What you're about to hear in the remainder of this podcast is a recording of a meeting of founders and members of the Association for Spiritual Integrity. 
45 spiritual teachers, members of the ASI, met for four hours prior to the start of the 2019 Science and Non-Duality Conference. For the first couple of hours, we engaged in a deep, honest discussion about the challenges teachers face, seeking to learn how we might better support one another. Then we broke into six groups, each group focusing on a particular topic. Then we reassembled and recorded the remainder of the meeting. Here's that recording. Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. We're in a rather unusual meeting, the likes of which may never have happened before, which is a gathering of maybe 30 spiritual teachers who have come for the Science and Non-Duality Conference, but we decided to meet before the conference to discuss some of the issues that are dear to the heart of the Association for Spiritual Integrity, which I helped found along with Jack O'Keefe and Craig Holiday a couple of years ago, and Miranda McPherson and Mariana Kaplan have since joined our advisors and board of directors. So we've had a meeting for the past couple of hours in which we've discussed a number of things, and we then broke out into smaller groups to focus more deeply on about five specific topics that had come up during the first couple of hours. Now we're back together, and we are going to tape this part of it and offer a little report from a member of each of those five groups as to what was covered in that discussion, and then we're going to go around the room, and everyone is going to give a one-sentence um, commitment that they would like to carry out into their lives after the conference that was perhaps inspired by the discussion we've had today. So I'm going to hand the mic to Mariana. Uh, I think, Rick, you shared the essence of what we're going to be offering here, but I just want to appreciate that on a day like today that this amount of gifted, talented leaders chose to spend four and a half hours together. And I think that we really did hear a lot of vulnerability and openness. And we may not have solved the issues, but the really important themes have been brought forth. So we will turn it to the spokesperson of of each team and we'll get these summaries. So the ASI was founded with the intention of creating greater ethical awareness and continuing education and professional growth for spiritual teachers. So we saw this need because there were so many wounds within the different spiritual communities. And so we wanted to support this. And so that, that's what the ASI is all about, is continued education, growth, accountability, transparency, creating a sense of greater integrity within this community. My name is Maya Apollonia Rodea, and I was in the group that talked about bringing forth women and feminine empowerment, uh, which was a topic of our previous circle earlier in the day. And I think one particular aha that we had was simply to distinguish between women and yin, for example, yin style teachings or the yin within each of us as a way to not exclude men from that conversation and not exclude the fact that men are within themselves dealing with similar issues. And then the action items, the ones related to sand, one idea was to have each day of sand include three-hour session led by a woman or women 
that wasn't competing against a lot of other stuff so that there would be an emphasis to bring in that sacred container for those types of teachings. We could say yin-style teachings. And to bring more of the yin type of teachings onto the website, what's offered through the SAND website. And one idea was to have another kind of gathering where instead of science and non-duality, it's yin and non-duality or some other (laughs) frame of that gathering. And another idea was to have some listservs online, one for women and one for, let's say, yin teachers that would include a photo and bio of each person so that we start to bring together these different people that are working in those different ways. And finally, the idea of finding ways that we can support each other in the process of bringing more balance to that. So I hope I did justice to our talk. Thank you. I'm Danny Antman, and our group was Ongoing Growth for Teachers and Continuing Education, Trauma, Attachment, and Shadow Work. And some of what we talked about was to have a survey of some teachers here about what is working for you best and put in practices that are working for the teachers around these topics. A group or personal growth council to continue deepening a group of peers that meets regularly. Some kind of appropriate sharing of the depth of our process, our internal work with students in an appropriate way so that they know that we're doing our work. And a kind of tribal gathering where teachers gather with younger teachers where honesty and vulnerability are in place and the teacher can be free of the role of the teacher in that place to talk about the role of the teacher, so on a regular basis. Our action was to perhaps to have a workshop, even if it's online, around developmental trauma that shows up in the teacher role, that all teachers really need to be informed by that. And it could be done as an inquiry model with a kind of questionnaire like you gave us, where the teacher assesses themselves regularly, also where the principles of developmental trauma are taught. And these are two separate things. One is the online teacher assessment that a teacher can go online and assess themselves on a regular basis around some of the things you had us do and perhaps a longer list. So that's about it. Our group is about creating community and peer support. And we had two areas that we covered. One was for creating more support among spiritual teachers. And the other area was how do we include disenfranchised people of color, young people much more into the spiritual community that is presently very white and um, middle class. So the one area, the action items we decided we would like to move forward with, um, with IAS, would be to have a meeting possibly once a month for spiritual teachers to have a peer group online. It could be also that we have it in just like now before SAND as a meeting together. And it could be also that we have a listing where we could contact each other, like through Facebook, have a closed group together. 
so that we have a much more substantial support that we can not only support each other, but also hold each other accountable, run things by each other, and um, bring up issues that come up as a spiritual teacher. The second part was that we our action item is to do with how do we include more people of color and young people in our community here. We raised the issue that it has to do a lot with financial, the financial situation. And so one idea was to create a webinar or to create, let's say, more online that would allow a whole group to be established by people who are young who want to practice together, but maybe can't afford the expensive retreats. And so that we would possibly offer that to bring more people in and also to create more community among each other so we can refer people to each other is to have a referral listing in IS where it's like your name is in there and then your specifics of what you offer and which area you work and what price range do you offer. Do you give scholarships? Do you work, you know, particularly with um, older people or younger people so that we really bring a variety in and that we know of each other. Thank you. I'm Sean Murphy, and our group was Healthy Power Dynamics and Dual Relationships. We seem to end up mostly talking about the difficulties with dual relationships and power dynamics. Our insights were people will come and go from spiritual training groups and that we should remember not to take things personally necessarily, although it may be our fault, in which case we should take it personally. (laughs) And that there should be a balance between accountability and it's their stuff. Somewhere in between, there's there's a balance point. And it was pointed out that we might have an expectation that people should stay. And what about individuation? What about people moving on in the way um, the way the teenagers move on, etc. And can we head off some of these issues by warning or saying something about it in, in advance or creating an agreement in advance? Our action items were, uh, as the person in power, perhaps we should name the power dynamic and the fact that emotions and triggers can come up and make an agreement that people can play different roles or will be playing different roles and a regular check-in on emotions and triggers on some sort of regular basis. My name is Kumi and uh, we talked about the ethics of the spiritual community and I suggested that we should have something like BBB, Better Business Bureau, for the spiritual community, this uh, bureau will just keep the data. will not say this is good, this is wrong, but just keeping the data and make a poster and send to all ashrams. And if something happens, this person who got abused can contact this place and this bureau will just keep the data. That was my idea. My name is uh, Shakti. We spoke about ethical behaviors and possible action. And we spoke about the importance to have 
awareness on misbehavior of teachers and guides. And also we spoke about another tendency that can, that can be with chanting and, and spiritual persecutions based on projection. And both things are true. And I think who has been a teacher knows how many times you receive projections and how many times they're based maybe on interpretations. And uh, how instead we also know how many times real things happen. And we agree that what is important is growing awareness on the subject, maybe doing even a conference about this, uh, making a summit about this. So there is more awareness in the seekers, in the students, and in the teachers that certain behavior are not approved. And in this way, you know, maybe people that uh, have some uh, misconduct will know that the tendency is not in this direction, where maybe in the past there was more hidden consensus or not speaking about it. So that's it, like growing awareness and the practical idea. Thank you. So here's the time where we get to see and hear and feel each other one more time. And it's going to come in the form, as I said, of a commitment. And I'd like to just invite people to deeply consider right now, as you may have been in the last while, some authentic commitment that will be either personal or professional. Um, not both today, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak first, so I will model that it's going to be a sentence and pass it along this way. I think that there um, is a lot of power in this, so I really want to invite us into our bodies and into our receiving of each other and supporting each other in our commitments and really making space for us to bring that forth and stand by it. My name is Mariana Kaplan, and I commit that wherever I'm asked to um, speak or teach that I bring forth the importance of the feminine and women's voices, which is totally inclusive and respectful of men as well. I'm Craig Holliday, and I'm just realizing that I give and give and give as a father, a teacher, as a therapist, and I'm committing to spending some time in silence and just being alone and just letting it all unravel and to take care of this inner child within me. I'm Peter Morton and I commit to collaborating with and empowering, giving a voice, a platform to more women. I'm Sasha Mazo and I commit to exploring my shadow and in an ongoing way, and to helping to birth a new humanity. My name is Deborah Cohen. I've been offering shadow groups to a lot of people. I commit to offering shadow groups to spiritual teachers. I'm Kylia Taylor, and I commit to telling every appropriate person I meet about ASI, and I commit to participating in a women's video conference group if one gets organized. I'm Jim Schofield, and I commit to keeping ethical considerations in the forefront of our work with Soul Collage, and of course with ethics. <laughs> I'm Nicola Madora, and I commit to speak the voice of the feminine unabashedly and also to walk in integrity in my life and in my work as a teacher. I'm Sharon Staffenson, and I commit to champion 
the yin energy, um, bringing that forth, and also to bring in the role of uh, developmental trauma in spiritual practices in life. I'm Pamela, and from a professional perspective, I would like to help really organize some of this information in terms of the workshops we've talked about, and maybe because I'm in Iowa part-time, work with Rick on this and really get some of the grunt work done. I'm Julie Brown Yao, and I commit to continue to speak from my heart with honesty and integrity and vulnerability and strength. I'm Kristen Kirk. I just got here for the tail end of all the beautiful sharing that all of you have been doing. So my honest commitment is just of continuing to hear more of what you have all brought forward. And if there's anything that aligns for me to support in that way, that my commitment is to do that. So thank you all for doing all this. My name is Carolina Falanga. I also just came in on the tail end of this. And so my commitment is to speaking authentically in all of my relationships and coming from my heart. Hi, I'm Christina, and I am committed to always staying present and always coming from a place of love. My name is Caverly Morgan, and uh, we spoke quite a bit about power and women, uh, touched a little bit on people of color, but I specifically feel committed in this moment to supporting myself and other white identified teachers with seeing what work is ours to do so that as we talk about inclusivity, we're being a space that can actually do that and own, and do the work that's ours to do. Thank you. My name is Jack O'Keefe, and my commitment is totally beautifully personal. I want to take care of my body a bit better to deepen my understanding of what it is to be human. My name is Sundari Jensen, and I commit to simplifying and expanding at the same time our training that we have for ethics and guidelines for teachers and leaders to make it more widely accessible for you, for everyone who wants it. I'm Ellen O'Brien, and I am committed to keeping the conversation about ethics in our spiritual community a living conversation, and also to staying connected to other spiritual teachers and communities so that we can learn from each other. I'm Jeffrey Martin, and I commit to creating some online digital safe spaces for peer-to-peer interactions, both of people that experience Things like non-duality in a persistent, ongoing way, and also people who help those that do. I'm John Parker. Deep gratitude for this day and this gathering. I commit to ASI in any way that I can possibly uh, be involved, and I'm open and available to that to take place. I'm Catherine Bell, and I'm committing to deepening my personal growth work as a teacher and as a human being and perhaps broadening that as well into other areas that I'm not as comfortable in since getting comfortable is dangerous. My name is Laren and uh, I commit to finding the marginalized people without access to teachings and these concepts and ideas and ways of experiencing and uh, bringing the information to them so they can reconceptualize their their pain and their struggle and and find a different way of living. 
I'm Sean Murphy. I commit to continued openness and vulnerability and continuing to learn and clarify. I'm Richard Stewart, and I'm committed to opening my heart so that I can be more accepting of the wide variety of spiritual experience for everyone that works with me. I'm Locke Kelly, and I commit to the integrity, the vulnerability, and the love to welcome all shadow parts within myself and to help others embody and awaken while including everything. I'm Danny Antman, and I commit to continuing this dialogue with my peers so I'm not so isolated. And to ASI's work, I'd like to be more involved. I'm Bonnie Greenwell. I'm committed to getting more involved with ASI also and uh, to doing whatever I can to support people who are trying to bring more integrity and wisdom into spiritual teaching. I'm Rick Archer, and um, I commit to living up in my personal life to the admonitions of two different spiritual teachers. One was Don Juan Matus, Carlos Castaneda's teacher, who said, a warrior has time only for his impeccability. And the other was Padmasambhava, who said, although my awareness may be as vast as, as the sky, my attention to karma, in other words, action or behavior, is as fine as a grain of barley flour. Hi, my name is Kumi, and uh, my commitment is to do my best to uh, serve the divine. And uh, also, I'm from Japan, came from the farthest east, so to be a mediator of the Western and Eastern world belief system. I'm Jeannie Zandi, and I also have a very personal commitment, which is to make two more peer buddies and deepen in relationship with them. I'm David Doyle. I commit to um, continuing to bring into my awareness a lot of what we have done here. And uh, I didn't know what to expect. This has been uh, intimate and pretty incredible. And then also, I'll try and come up with at least a template, semi-legal template for purchasing properties for groups. I'm Lorraine Taylor, and I commit to looking into my own heart, my own integrity, my own humanity, and empowering others to do the same. I'm David Elsey, and I commit to doing everything in my conscious power and unconscious power to be a location where all aspects of both humanness and transcendence can be known to be one and for it to be a place for others to know that as well. I am Shakti Katarina Maggi. I commit myself to be a service of everybody and loving everybody as embodiment of the divine. I'm Susie Adra and I commit to transparency authenticity, and listening to my inner guidance and speaking my truth no matter what. I'm Kabir Helminski, and I commit to explore with the groups that I'm responsible for how to increase trust, honesty, 
and vulnerability. I'm Kent Welsh, and I commit to supporting the authentic and harmonious relationship and expression of the yang and the yin. I'm Lisa Rankin, and personally, I recommit to the Hippocratic Oath and the concept of first doing no harm, which means for me staying in therapy and being really in integrity around relationship and power dynamics. And professionally, I'm really committed to taking the kind of work that we do in healing and spiritual teaching and bringing it to more marginalized communities more accessibly, more affordably. My name is Maya Apollonia Rode, and I commit to continuing to deepen my capacity to act with integrity, even when it's scary or challenging or life-threatening. I'm Mirabai Star, and I am committed to lifting up the voices of younger women spiritual leaders helping them find what is uniquely theirs to bring to the table, and especially younger women of color. I'm Sonia Amrita Bibelos, and I commit to ever-evolving personally and professionally and supporting others to evolve in their authentic, right-aligned way. I'm Renata Ledantek, and I commit to keep exploring what can be done and to keep contributing to ASI. So... Let's take a few moments here both to dedicate to our commitment and also if you heard commitments echoed around the room that you also want to commit to, to take a moment to choose those two, to choose what you want to commit to. And because there's so many people here with great blessing power, I want to ask us to bless and support the voiced and not voiced commitments of of each other. Thank you from ASI, from my hearts. Thank you. And like we've met now, so I want to invite us all to just start talking to each other. We may not have, right now we know each other, so to take advantage of these days and, you know, bask in each other's light, but also find these peers that we're looking for and make new friends and give ourselves a chance to come out of the isolation of many people's roles of leadership. Let's really be together as, as peers and allies in these days and make new friends and enjoy ourselves and each other as well. A big thank you. Just, I was speaking with these two girls at lunch today and was, I just thought what a success this is, just how great it is to get everyone in the same room You know, I've been to a lot of conferences and things before where teachers walk around aloof in their own little bubbles, and this is a beautiful thing we're creating. So let's keep it up. If you're not a member of the ASI, please join us. We have all kinds of ongoing meetings and uh, all kinds of ways to support each other. Um, Yeah, so please, please join us. We're so thankful. Jack, anything? The ASI is is a member organization. I mean, it's just us you know, <laughs> making it up as we go along. Will we try this? Will we try that? And and some things work and some things don't, even though I might be full of steam for it and it falls flat and we just go and try the next thing. 
And this worked. And there's a lot of ideas here that came today that it's like, hmm, we could do that. Hmm, we could do that. So I don't know what will actually come to fruition. I'm really appreciative of the people who said, I want to do more and support the ASI. We need help. It's only peers taking care of peers. It can be as resourcing as we make it for ourselves. That's the gig. That's all. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for giving the time. Thank you. And a special thank you to Mariana. Mariana and Batgap and all the little parts that made it happen. Thank you, folks.